Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This week, I am interviewing Maureen Kincaid Speller. She is the senior reviews editor for Strange Horizons, by turn a sci-fi critic and copy editor, often all in the space of one day. She reviews science fiction and fantasy for Vector, Interzone, and Foundation, among other places. Also blogs intermittently at paperknife.maureenkincaidspeller.com. She lives with Paul Kincaid in what weather forecasters persist in calling the extreme southeast of the UK and owns three cats with strong views on the timing of breakfast. One of the first bits of feedback I got was from Maureen after she listened to my baffled reaction to the buried giant way back in episode one. Dedicated listeners, you hearty few, may remember this bit of reaction. I don't feel as though I could in any way critique or talk about what I think Ishiguro is trying to accomplish or how well he does that. Maureen had any number of thoughts about the buried giant, only some of which were included in the Strange Horizon book club. I'll leave that along with some other critical reactions in the show notes. He's interested in two things which are very intensely intertwined, which is the relationship between Axel and Beatrice, and the ways in which the uh, post-Romano-British and the Saxon incomers are trying to negotiate a relationship. Our discussion will be coming in two parts. This episode... Some thoughts on reading The Buried Giant and different critical reactions, the vague landscape that resisted my attempts to argue with the world building, and then the ways that national memories and myths are constructed. As for spoilers, the discussion assumes a knowledge of the plot and talks about details and revelations that play out late in the book, but my own opinion is that even more than most discussions, these are more likely to enhance your reading. But spoilers ahoy. We'll begin with our discussion of reading The Buried Giant. I've read the novel several times now, and it sort of strikes me in different ways every time I I read it. And I I think that's actually quite deliberate, that it is not an easy book to pin down. The first time I read it, I was very excited, because I just just got it finally, and I, I read the whole thing in the morning. It pulled me through, and I really wanted to finish it. I was arguing with it, I was rereading my tweets and realizing I, I was almost always grumpy about something in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I love books where you're constantly you know, sort of arguing, or I, mean, I suppose there is a level on which I read novels kind of like a detective story. You know, there's always a sort of process of um, analysis and attempting to unpack the novel. I often feel quite uncomfortable about that. It's the critical practice I've been taught, and at the end of it, I still need to be able to knit the novel back together you know, and actually make it into a whole, because otherwise I, I feel I've I failed the novel of myself, and I was struck this time, knowing what was happening and what was going on, how interesting it was to stop along the way to look at what Ishiguro was trying to do with it. You're never quite sure whether it is fantastic, you know, there really are ogres and dragons and things, or whether it's an allegorical landscape. And one of the things I've been rather amused by in a lot of the criticism is this kind of scandal that you can't tell. <laughs> yes. Um, the laziest critics have reached for Game of Thrones, it should be like this, why isn't it like this? And then you've got some of the more thoughtful genre readers and critics who sort of bridled, I mean, looking among them. Whereas to me, I think the whole point of the novel is that the landscape must be ever moving, in part because it's set within a doubly fictional landscape. We have the fictional landscape that Ishiguro himself creates, but he's using the fictional landscape 
of that our theory in Britain. Right. I think John Cleet actually hits the nail on the head with that one when he, he talks about that kind of landscape. And he's arguing for it being a fantastic novel rather than a fantasy. I think, in a way, that's actually what's fretting um, Le Guin and various others, is that they can't quite pin down what it is. I mean, when Ishiguro says, hey, will they think it's a fantasy? I'm assuming that he is worried that people will think it is like Game of Thrones, whereas he's... You know, we, we chop terms here, but you know he's he's thinking of something fantastical, and that's not quite the same thing to me. But I think it also actually showed up just how funny people still are about genre. <laughs> half the critics go, "Oh my God, it's genre, it's fantasy," Ugh. and the other half are sort of say, "Is he dissing our genre?" Well, no, I don't think he's doing that at all. I thought at one point whether he was perhaps having some sort of dialogue with it, but I don't think that even. I think he's just using one part of it, and the part that sort of tends towards perhaps the more allegorical. Mm -hmm. Hence the lack of the necessity to, to build world in the way that has become, I think, for a, a lot of people, that's the sort of the epitome of what fantasy is, this very detailed world building. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he's moving away from that. This was very tough for me to read as a genre novel. I like the details and I like sort of having them filled in and I, I found that I like to argue with the world behind the characters or rejoice in the world behind the characters when sort of really well executed. It may be. I mean, I get where you're coming from with that and in certain you know, periods of my reading life, yes, I've enjoyed that kind of detail as well. I don't know whether it's whether I've sort of reached a stage in my reading, you know, I've been doing this for quite a long time now, um, that I've actually lost interest in having a richly detailed background, or mm -hmm. I find a richly detailed background can become more distracting. When I'm sort of thinking, when I'm reading, when I'm thinking about writing about a book, I've actually noticed of late that I tend not to think about the world building unless there's something really distracting. It was something that is, to me, sort of particularly very irritating. Coming from the idea of using the fantastic not as the secondary world that perhaps you were expecting, very interested in the ways in which, particularly Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is actually my favourite, the way in which so much is done with so little. There's, there's that lovely section where Gawain's been sort of fiddling around all year and not done anything. It suddenly occurred to him he really needs to set off and find the Green Knight. So he's actually ridden out finally from uh, Arthur's court and is you know, heading north across the middle of Britain and the middle of England as we know it now, looking for things. And he's sort of describing the landscape. And the landscape is actually taken care of in about three or four verses. I, I find it very evocative. Tolkien says, yes, many a cliff he climbed o'er in con countries unknown, far fled from his friends without fellowship he rode. At every wading or water on the way that he passed, he found a foe before him, save at few for a wonder. And he it was a fantastic idea of this, also incredibly bleak. You know, at wilds with worms he wars, and with wolves also, at wilds with wood trolls that wandered in the crags, and with bulls and with bears and boars too at times, and with ogres that hounded him from the heights of the fells. So he's sort of got this idea of this landscape, but whereas somebody, oh, I don't know, who should we have as an example? Well, Tolkien. He's sort of putting in a great deal of detail about this world, and I mean, Tolkien's not by any means the most detailed of them. But what fascinated me is how in Sir Gawain, it's just all contained in those few bits, because we're moving on to what they're going to do when he gets to the castle of the Green uh, Knight. And it seemed to me that Ishiguru was doing the same thing, that he's actually inviting 
us as the reader or the listener to sketch that bit in for ourselves because it's going to be different for each of us anyway. And it's almost like he's inviting us to engage with the storytelling as well. Uh, we're filling in those kinds of detail, but it's not a laziness. It's it's a collaborative thing. He doesn't need a whole landscape through which to move because that's not what he's actually interested in. He's interested in two things which are very intensely intertwined, which is the relationship between Axel and Beatrice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's a relationship, and how that relationship is maintained, particularly because there's so much they've forgotten. But then that's set against the wider relationship of this kind of fuzzy Anglo-Saxon world, you know, sort of just post-Roman world coming into the waves of migration of the Saxons and the attempt to make it into a Saxon kingdom, and the ways in which the post-Romano-British and the Saxon incomers are trying to negotiate a relationship which is on the brink of falling down. So you've actually got two relationships which are on the, the verge of disintegration because of the attempt to uh, kill Querig, the dragon, the she-dragon. And I think if, if Shiguru had gone all out on trying to build a world, that would have been a distraction. That's not what he's interested in. I liked the fact that the background, the world, was kind of misty and fuzzy. And There are several other ways I could justify this to you. Mm-hmm. Historically, we're actually sort of dealing with little groups of people who don't always have a huge amount of contact with the world, say, beyond what you can walk in a day. Now, I mean, it's true that um, when people talk about you know, this period being the Dark Ages, it's quite clear it's anything but. It's just we don't really have it written down. They had contacts. Ideas were flowing. People were moving around. But not everybody was moving around. So for a lot of people, they wouldn't have gone very far. Certainly later on in the history of Britain, periods where, you know, say, the 19th century, you'd have people who never went very far from their village. And you hear stories in the sort of more remote parts of certainly England where you'd go 20 miles down the road and not understand the dialect. Yeah, mm-hmm. because everybody involved their very particular language for what's around them. So there's the sense of that kind of cultural isolation. What's around them is very familiar and they don't have to pay attention to anything else. I, I think it's sort of noticeable when Axel and Beatrice move away from their village. There's a bit more detail, you know, they pay a bit more attention, they're leveling in what's around them. But the other way I was thinking about looking at it as a possibility when I first started reading it is that if this has been told from the point of view of Axel and Beatrice, who are forgetting because everybody's forgetting, but they're also quite old. They, they attempt to deny this to themselves and others, but they're, they're clearly getting on. And one sort of wondered whether perhaps you know there's a sense of the, the mists, the veils of failing memory as well. So I'm kind of wondering if part of what he's doing is actually trying to give this effect of um, memory. Take another example. And Paul and I, Paul Kincaid and I met in 1984. We know exactly where we met. We even know the room of the house we met in. And we have completely different stories of how we met. <laughs> My story is that I into myself to him. And I'm actually quite shy. And I, I find it quite difficult to walk into a room and just introduce myself to a stranger. And also, I, I was kind of aware of who Paul was. Um, I, I knew him as a critic. I, I didn't know him personally, obviously. And I was a bit shocked to find who I just introduced myself to. And his version of it is different. We think that actually what happened was somebody, uh, that, a mutual friend, had said to him, you need to meet so-and-so. You need to meet Maureen. And he'd gone off to find me. And I, of course, had arrived of my own accord. In the meantime, quite coincidentally. But, you know, Something as basic and fundamental to the mythos of Paul and Maureen, we can't even get that right between the two of us. Right. You wonder you know, whether there's sort of this, this constant ongoing triangulation of memory as, as a reassurance. 
I did like the notion that part of what's going on with some of the vagueness is that there is forgetting and there are many layers of forgetting. I definitely find appealing the idea that we have kind of isolated communities and then vague distances in between them. Memory and ways that people remember and ways that people forget is clearly so central, and yet whenever I try to put my finger on it, it feels like, oh, yes, people sort of remember their lives differently and forget things differently, and also we tell each other stories about other communities to make ourselves remember in certain ways. And I feel like there's a lot of complexity and layer there, but any time I try to think to myself about what's going on with memory, I'm reduced to very banal and uninteresting statements. I think it's very slippery. I mean, I'm struck, particularly in the UK, we've had a, a great deal of a ceremony and ritual to sort of mark it's 100 years since the First World War. And one of the things that I find somewhat, let's be bold, yes, I find it very offensive, is the way that my government is choosing to not exactly rewrite history, but dwell upon certain things and emphasize certain things. It's not quite as extreme as the situations in various parts of Europe and um, in places like Rwanda where there have been sort of recent atrocities and people having to consciously forget in order to keep going. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm very much aware of the fact that the way in which my government is trying to construct a particular narrative about the First World War and about Britain's participation in the First World War. And it's a narrative that seems to me to be trying to sh sort of move away again from just how absolutely awful it was in the trenches and you know, how difficult it was, particularly on the southern edges of Britain again, you know, because uh, we weren't immune to attacks. They were sort of beginning to develop aerial attacks and Folkestone, where I live, was actually hit by um, German bombs at that point. But it struck this narrative again of you know, the glorious nature of our achievement. And it, it has never seemed to me to be particularly glorious. You know, it's sort of hundreds and thousands of men dying, slogging up and down in the mud you know, for, for a few yards of land at times. And again with the, the Second World War, we've just finished celebrating uh, the Battle of Britain 50 years on. Um, sorry, 60, 70 years on, 70 years on. And uh, unfortunately, um, because I am placed in the extreme southeast, I have been sitting under the celebrations, <laughs> which has involved many reconstructed Spitfires uh, flying around overhead to mark the fact that this has happened, which is all fine and dandy, but if you're young, you're, you're sort of suddenly left with this impression that all it really consisted of you know, was a few planes flying around. It, it gives you no sense of what it was actually like to be living under an, uh, you know, the scene of an aerial bombardment. So the whole thing is kind of glossed over. That's bad enough, I think, in itself. But when you push on to things like the war that came with the dissolution of Yugoslavia into its you know, various states, mm -hmm. then with the massacre of the Hutus in Rwanda, I mean, here we're rewriting. So you might actually sort of say that in rewriting the First World War and the Battle of Britain, we're buying into the same kind of idea that Ishiguru was talking about in the way that Arthur's attempt to unite the country is glossed as a sort of series of glorious victories. And then you move on things like um, Yugoslavia and uh, Rwanda where there has to be a very conscious act of forgetting or overlooking. Actually, overlooking is better, I think, because I don't think you forget. As you see in the accounts people give of the fact that they know they're living with their neighbours, they know what their neighbours did, and everybody's going to pretend that they didn't right. do it in order to get along. And I think that that is actually part of what Ishiguru was trying to get at here. But, as he said in various interviews, without directly engaging with it, because, of course, then you wander into that problem of trying to write about 
cultures that you are not a part of and you can't begin to understand exactly what they were like. You can sort of read about them and try and work your way into it, but there's still something fundamentally missing and you open yourself to criticism that you haven't represented those cultures and societies properly. Whereas if you reach back to something like the upheaval that occurred as the Romano-British, you know, the Romans had officially marched away, but a lot of people had stayed behind. And you reach a point where the sort of first Saxon immigrants are working their way into, I mean, immigrant, that's, that's a very charged word in Europe at the moment. The Saxon visitors, settlers are arriving and they're trying to sort of forge a, a relationship. But the, that's okay you know, as far as it goes. They've managed to get that far. But the moment you actually have somebody who wants to create what is effectively a sovereign territory. You go back to the previous problem. You, you can't keep forgetting. Querig becomes the symbol of that forgetting. We're going to move now from forgetting to the formation of myths and the mechanisms of that formation. There's a guy called John James who wrote a series of absolute cracking reworkings of the history of this period. And the first two, uh, Votan and uh, Not For All The Gold In Ireland, are about a, a Romanized guy who um, ends up sort of effectively um, becoming Wodin, Votan. Although he's quite human, he gets caught up in a series of ventures that become sort of mythologized or blended in to uh, a series of stories that already exist. And he's sort of saying, no, well, you know, this is the story that's occurred, you know, sort of blown up about you know, what I did. This is what really happened. And one of the most recent ones, a posthumous novel, has appeared in the last year, and it's the fourth Guinevere. One of the things that the main narrative talks about is the point when Arthur dies. They needed the, the myth of Arthur, you know, mm -hmm. as... as, as um, and they needed that, um, you know, sort of the once and future king, they needed that to keep the country together. It seems to me in a way that Ishiguru is actually possibly unconsciously riffing off this, the same idea. He's touching on the, 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 the fact of having magic works involving Querig, you know, the breath of Querig to keep the country together, is actually buying into the same kind of idea. It's sort of weirdly disconnected. And then at the same time, think, well, why not? You know, dragon breath. Why not? If that's what works, let, mm -hmm. let's do that. But we at a distance, in the same way that we are sitting there thinking ogres, pixies, uh, are thinking, you know, dragon. It's almost like this, this is all we've got to work on. So what distinguishes us is how we decide to work with that. Do we run with it and say, okay, fine, we don't know? Or do, are we less accepting? You know, do we have to be more critical about it? You know, it's almost like Ishiguro say, there's all these different kinds of sleight of hand going on. Which kind of sleight of hand do you want? Do you want the logical one, or should we have the really weird one, but this might be true too? You had talked about the British government kind of retelling narratives of World War One and Two, and also the Rwandan genocide, and the ways people were setting aside things that had happened. And of course, in America, I mean, my, my mom and I were talking about Barry Giant, and one of the first things she said was, this is race in America. And there was, there was work done and generations worth of work in terms of physical violent acts and also writing and rewriting of histories in order to create our understanding of how people are living together right now here in this country. It's sort of interesting to look at all of those different ways of getting at what is the history in the world we live in now and say, sure, dragon breath. Like that, that is kind of another very similar idea, right? And maybe sort of focusing on results rather than 
mechanism because maybe the mechanism doesn't matter quite as much? I think one of the things that's going on is that you've actually reached a point in the novel where younger people or people who weren't part of the process, as Gawain and Axel were, are sort of questioning the process and feeling that the only way they're going to have change is through action rather than stasis. There are two models. There's the static model in which we go on as before. Um, and everybody just forgets what's going on. I think you might actually sort of read the, the village where Axel and Beatrice start out as a sort of representing what happens when that situation goes too far. It's a very static place, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like that bridge that was destroyed in uh, Pristina, the, the very important, iconic historical bridge um, that was um, blown up, and it's been restored. And it, it's become, you know, it's represented as a symbol of the fact that they're moving on, but it's exactly the same as it was. So there's obviously this desire to retain and pretend that things have you know, stayed the same. But you know you know they're not. Turning back to Axel and Beatrice's village. Doing what they do, what they've always done. They barely remember what's going on. You know, they don't notice things, um you know, like the, the child Marta going missing. Right. So they're sort of basically just keeping going. It's actually when Axel and Beatrice leave the village and go out into the wider world. There's that sense that there's a lot more going on, but they're not quite, well, they're not at all sure, really, of what it is. But it's almost actually like the sort of, if you can imagine the dragon's breath sort of eddying around, you know, like mist. And in some places it's thicker, and in other places it's thinner. Mm -hmm. And as a moving in and out of this, there's this very sort of confused idea. And if you get to a place that's sheltered, perhaps, or there's, you know, not so much of the mist there, like the Saxon village, and there's a sense that they're, they're suddenly much more aware that things are happening, that people do forget, but they don't forget in quite the same way, um, because they don't necessarily forget as much. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting contrast between what goes on um, in that village. It's, it's a much more organised village. You know, we see the sort of crafts, we see the fact it's got a communal um, canteen area, the longhouse, you know, there's coming and going, whereas the village that Axe and Beatrice have come from, it's quite definitely up a backwater, and it's very, very static. So you've actually then already got those two contrasting ideas of what you would do, you know, whether you just do what you've always done, or whether you're looking to a situation where things change and they, they you know, your sort of material circumstances might improve or there might be innovation. But then, of course, the moment you actually, everybody arrives at the place where Querig is buried or semi-buried, you've got, again, that sort of sense of it being very heavy, but you notice then that it's the younger people who seem to struggle much more against the mist, whereas the older people like Gawain and Axel and Beatrice, who have kind of been there, so to speak, it's easier for them almost to begin to reach back. Mm -hmm. that They're losing the habit of forgetting. I think the sword fighting in all of this is actually, you know, the battles in this are very interesting because Ishiguro sort of commented in um, interviews that you know, he's sort of very much inspired by the, the samurai manga and the stories he knew from childhood. And it's all about killing very cleanly. And it's a bit, it's a bit like um, watching uh, sumo wrestling. You know, the sort of the actual bit that's important is not the moment of contact between the two bodies. It's all the manoeuvring around the ring first, you know, the throwing of the salt and the glaring at one another. The actual sort of bodily contact is almost incidental because the bout is won or lost you know, by the way one guy throws his salt and how the other responds to that. And it seems to me here that what we've been presented with all the way through, both Gawain and Whiston, is that they are both people who understand the importance of fighting. It's not a glorious thing. That you know, It has to be done 
if it must be done, and sometimes it has to be done, it has to be done cleanly and neatly and professionally. Whereas that wonderful scene at the end when they're fighting, where they're sizing up the ground, they are together discussing where they will have the fight. And they spend, I think, almost as much time on that as the actual battle. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's it's not really a battle. It's a, it's a very brief encounter with very sharp swords. Mm-hmm. Winston, the younger man, is, is better equipped to deal with it. But they're both discussing the fact that they want to die well. And they want to die cleanly. And they want to die, you know, there's a great line about not sort of on the lip of this with my entrails hanging over the side. So they want to die as they have fought cleanly and professionally. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're very, very aware of the cost of these things. You know, they, they don't undertake a battle lightly. It's as though all along, I mean, obviously Gawain has sought to avoid it because he's well aware, you know, he'd have been there at Arthur's final battle and, you know, the grimness of that, he's not going to want to have that happen again. But he's actually sort of got pushed to a point now where the only sacrifice he can make is himself. So he's going to do that as cleanly and professionally as he possibly can. They're both trained fighters. They know what it's about. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as though Ishiguru represents them as a kind of between them. The two of them are in a front to people who imagine that war is about fighting, is about the glory, whereas they both know that it's about doing it as quickly as possible. And part of your responsibility as a fighter is to kill cleanly, kill quickly, you know, without sort of hammering blows on somebody. You know, so that they're, they're, they're dead, done. But it's two, it's in part as though they provide the critique for the wars that are coming. You know, sort of um, Lord Brennan, whom we never actually meet, is in anticipating war. And the Saxon leader, whom we never meet, is anticipating war. And mm-hmm. you have the that both of these leaders have a very different idea of what fighting is going to be to Gawain and to Wiston, you actually have to go and do it. And so they, they exist as a kind of approach to them as well. I know what we need to talk about, Jonah. Yes. We need to talk about the boatman. And we are going to talk about the boatman and interpersonal relationships next episode. For now, I will leave you with Maureen's memory of a significant book. Quite difficult, actually. So I read so many things, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I was little, I had set of encyclopedias, Arthur Me Encyclopedia for Children. And it was very old when I had it, and it was terribly old-fashioned. It was, um, I think, pre-World War II. But the reason I loved it so much was um, not because of history or anything, else, but one of the things it had all through the stories was, uh, all through the, the volumes, were stories. And they were myths and legends. Um, there were lots of them were sort of European foundational um, this and sort of stories about Charlemagne, stories about Arthur, and I think I read them so much when I was a child. Um, I think that those are actually, in many ways, the kind of the, the making of me. You know, they sort of laid the foundation for all the other kinds of things that I was interested in, to the point where about fifteen, twenty years ago, I suddenly realised I I needed to have a set. Um, that the childhood set had long since vanished somewhere. I don't know where that went. I, I actually, I was in Hanwai, which you, you perhaps know is one of the, the book towns in, uh, in, in England. It's you know, got the, the, the town of a thousand bookshops. And it seemed it was the place I would actually find uh, a set of these. And indeed, there were many sets of them in uh, uh, Hanwai. And I eventually found a very nice set that wasn't too damaged. And I, I proudly bore them off for £10. It was one pound a volume. And they literally, I, I, I look through them from time to time, but they sit on the bottom shelf out of the way. But it's the that they're there that's important. 
if I ever need them, they're there. And um, I don't need to read them. So that's perhaps a very sort of strange and convoluted uh, answer to your question. But it really is important to know they're there, even if I forget about them all the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.